Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 106, the first 18 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Friday, May the 20th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look in the Book of Wisdom is the first lesson today. Um, it's chapter 16, verse 15, to chapter 17, verse 1. And quick reminder, the Book of Wisdom is not found in the canon of Scripture. It is in the Apocrypha, and Anglicans, Roman Catholics, and others use the Apocrypha, but we do so advisedly and guardedly. When you read an Old Testament lesson in church, it ends with... Um, Thus saith the Lord. Um, and then the response is, thanks be to God. Or the, I'm sorry, the word of the Lord. And then the response is, thanks be to God. When you read something from one of these books, the, the, uh, what you say at the end is, here endeth the lesson. You're not saying it's the word of the Lord. But what we've, what we've done is to say these books are profitable for Christians to read. They're sort of recommended reading list, maybe is a way to say it. So wisdom comes from that. This is the Apocrypha. So, to escape from thy hand is impossible, for the ungodly refusing to know thee were scourged by the strength of your arm, pursued by unusual rains and hail and relentless storms, and utterly consumed by fire. So we see here that, that God's judgment will be done, whether it's on earth or it's in heaven. It'll, it'll, it will ultimately be done. Justice will prevail. We tend to bound our lives by our lives. <laughs> we, we circumscribe God's ability to, to reconcile things by our own lifespan. And what we need to do is take a longer view of that and be able to say, even if all these aren't, things aren't reconciled by the time I die, ultimately they will be. Justice will be done, and for the long term throughout eternity. And so what's happened is, is these people, he says, have, have denied there's a Lord, denied there's a God. They have tempted fate, essentially. But ultimately what happened was those who came after God's people were judged and were found wanting and were and died. <clears throat> for most incredible of all, in the water which quenches all things, the fire had still greater effect, for the universe defends the righteous. That There's a, a an odd... Uh, belief, actually, about what happens through the Red Sea. It's rabbinic Judaism, and, and that's what this is referring to, that there was a fire in the midst of the sea that consumed Pharaoh and his armies. Uh, at one time, the flame was restrained so that it might not consume the creatures sent against the ungodly, but that seeing this, they might know that they were being pursued by the judgment of God. And at another time, even in the midst of water, it burned more intensely than fire to destroy the crops of the unrighteous land. So he, he's speaking about things that, that come from rabbinic Judaism, which is a big part of the reason that people don't believe that this was actually written by Solomon, even though a lot of it sounds like something Solomon would have written based on what we see in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. He said, instead of these things, thou didst give thy people food of angels. He's talking about the manna in the wilderness. And without their toil, they didst supply them from heaven with bread ready to eat. You didn't have to do anything, <clears throat> providing every pleasure and suited to every taste. 
you know, it's sort of like what it what it reminds me of to hear it say that it's suited to every taste. That is, whatever anybody wanted it to taste like is what it tasted like. For thy sustenance manifested thy sweetness toward thy children, and the bread ministering to the desire of the one who took it was charged to suit everyone's liking. That is very much in keeping with the way rabbinic Judaism looks at things now and has looked at things down through the centuries. They, they will say things like this. And it, that that whatever people ate, that's what it. Whatever they needed it to taste like or wanted it to taste like is exactly what it tasted like. That that's not at all out of keeping with the way rabbinic Judaism looks at scripture. So, <clears throat> the, continuing with that, um, snow and ice withstood fire while melting, so that they might know that the crops of their enemies were being destroyed by the fire that blazed in the hail. That's one of the plagues. And flashed in the showers of rain, whereas the fire, in order that the righteous might be fed, even forgot its native power. So it didn't destroy the crops of the Israelites. For creation, serving thee who has made it, exerts itself to punish the unrighteous, and in kindness relaxes on behalf of those who trust in thee. So he says that creation cooperates with God's will. And God's will would be to bless his people, the ones who trust in him, and it would be to to curse those who do not. And he says, so that the, the earth cooperates in different ways. And that would be kind of the point of the promised land, because it, it's a new Garden of Eden. If they keep the law, then, then God will bless it with superabundance in a way no other place on earth is blessed. And so that's exactly the, the argument that Solomon is making here. <clears throat> Therefore, at that time also, at that time also changed into all forms, it served thy all-nourishing bounty according to the desire of those who had need, even in the wilderness, so that thy sons, whom thou didst love, O Lord, might learn that it's not the production of crops that feeds man, but thy word preserves those who trust in thee. Where do you hear that? Well, you hear Jesus whenever the, the Satan tempts him to, to make food out of the stones, make bread out of the stones, that what, is, what does Jesus say? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so that's what you hear here. It's not the production of crops that feeds man. They're in the wilderness. They're not making crops. But that thy word preserves those who trust in thee. So if you're feasting on his word, he will provide everything that you need. For what was not destroyed by fire was melted when simply warmed by a fleeting ray of the sun. That's the, the manna. Remember that they had to get it early in the morning to make known that one must rise before the sun to give thee thanks. So it's, it's he's teaching them a principle with the manna uh, that evaporated in the heat of the day, that you got to get up early in the morning. If you want the best of God, you got to get up early in the morning and must pray to thee at the dawning of the light. For the hope of an ungrateful man will melt like wintry frost and flow away like wastewater. So he's saying, begin the day, begin the day early by thanking God and praising God. Great are your judgments and hard to describe, therefore uninstructed souls have gone astray. It's important, he says, to have teaching. I mean, it's a very rabbinic, that, that, that entire passage we just read is just filled with rabbinic teaching. And ultimately it comes down to the end to say uninstructed souls have gone astray. They don't have a teacher. They don't have a rabbi. So in the uh, gospel passage today, we have Luke 8, 40 to 56. Now, when Jesus returned from being over in the country of the Gerasenes and healing the Gerasene demoniac, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him, which is it, certainly in contrast to what happens as soon as he steps off the boat. This, these, this man filled with demons, and the demons are speaking, um, 
wants to know what the problem is. Why are you here? As opposed to here, they welcomed him. They were all waiting for him to come back from the land of the Gerasenes of all places. And there came a man named Jairus who was ruler of the synagogue, which means that he would have been one of the probably one of the rabbis or maybe one of the, the elders. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. Remember what happened on the other side. They, they begged him to go, get out of here. Jairus, knowing that Jesus has come from this sort of horrible place as far as spiritual things are concerned. He would have been definitely um, ritually unclean for having contact with uh, a demon-possessed man in the tombs with pigs and blood and all this other stuff involved. But he implored him, Jesus, to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So on the other side, they wanted Jesus to leave because of his power. Here on this side, they welcome him, implore him to come to their house because of his power. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So it's well known that she is a woman with an issue of blood, which means that if you touch her, you become ritually unclean as well. But here she is in this crowd for one reason. She hoped the same thing that Jairus hoped, that Jesus could be the healer. So she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And, and wealthy men would, would have certain things embroidered at the edge of their garment that told people when they came up, there's power in this man. That they, if you saw this in the fringe, then you would see the power. And so she touches the fringe of Jesus's garment because she recognizes and believes that's where the power of the man is. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. In other words, there's so many people around here, it's going to be impossible to tell. I mean, half of them here might have touched you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. He could feel it. He could feel that something had gone out. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she couldn't hide anymore, she came trembling and falling down before him just like the man the, the garrison did, but for a different reason. Didn't fall down to worship. It falled down, falling down before him, even though it recognized who he was. It, it didn't want to submit completely to his authority and didn't want to give honor and glory and worship to him. No, that those demons wanted Jesus to go away. They wanted him to, to treat them well. They had things they wanted from them. They weren't worshiping him. They were respecting him. And they were fearing him. But the fear wasn't leading to worship. Here, that's what's happened. This woman falls down before and declares in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. What a beautiful, beautiful passage that is. But like I've said before, you know, you, you think Jesus was ritually unclean from having been there with the garrison demoniac. Now you've got a woman who is ritually unclean herself who touches Jesus which would tend to have made him ritually unclean, except, as I've said before, the math doesn't work because unclean touching clean, touching clean makes it unclean. But what happens when unclean touches clean and unclean is made clean? The, the math just doesn't work. So now, has Jesus been defiled? No, it flowed the other way. That's not the way it works. But it did. <laughs> so Jairus is undeterred by this. 
while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. There's nothing he can do. They believed that he could do anything up until that moment. But now that she's dead, there's nothing he can do. But Jesus, on hearing this, he's already done it, remember, with the widow of Nain, when he reached up, touched the beer, and restored the dead boy to his mother. <clears throat> Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, don't fear, only believe, and she'll be well. I mean, he said the same thing to the, to the woman, stop weeping. The widow of Nain, stop weeping. Here, he says, don't fear. How could you not? I mean... What would you be feeling? You, you, you'd be feeling devastation. You'd be feeling all kinds of things. Jesus is counseling him and calling him to continue to believe. And she'll be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. So he takes three of his disciples and the father and mother of the child there. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, don't weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. This is the same kind of language he uses with Lazarus, and it confuses his disciples. If he's asleep, then he'll be fine. He'll, he'll wake up and he'll be good. No, 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 he's dead. Here, he was dead there because he, dead, essentially they gave up hope after three days that he doesn't revive. And so it's the fourth day when Jesus shows up there. Here, she's sleeping, so she's in that intermediate state is what he means. They think she's taking a nap is what he's trying to say. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. He doesn't understand, <laughs> moron. Who who laughs in that situation? I have thought. I'm going to keep it to myself. <clears throat> but taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise, which is what he said to the widow of Nain's son, which is also, you know, <clears throat> and her spirit returned, and she got up at once. So the spirit returned thing, what I was saying earlier about after three days, that they somebody is, you know, well and truly dead. In that intermediate state, the belief was that the spirit hung around, waiting for the body to revive. Here's the other way around. Jesus, so Jesus re- revives the body and the spirit returned. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. So he has commanded that spirit to come back into the body. In the same way it, that in, in the country of the Gerasenes, he commanded the spirit to leave the body. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Can you imagine? Right? <laughs> um, I'm telling everybody, and I'm telling them now. And so are all these people who are here. But it's odd that he tells this person, Jairus, the synagogue ruler, tells him not to tell anybody that what Jesus has done. But over on the other side of the Galilee, over in the country of the Gerasenes, he tells that guy to stay there and tell everybody. And he does. You can bet. That, that the word got out from here, that Jesus had done this incredible miracle of raising this girl from the dead. Paul now is continuing his argument here that he started with, don't quarrel over opinions. This is in Romans 14, uh, verses 13 to 23. He's continuing the argument that began with, don't argue with people, a, a weak brother, somebody who's weak in the faith, over his opinions. And then he starts talking about certain opinions, and that was whether to eat meat or not, whether to keep certain days or not. So he says, he tells you, stop passing judgment on one another. It goes both ways. You're not supposed to judge the weaker brother, and you're not supposed to judge the other brother. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And that makes perfect sense. Um, Don't use your license 
as a way to make an, another brother stumble, respect the fact that, that they believe God has spoken to them. Respect that. Because there are some people who, who have been, you know, who have a word from the Lord not to drink, for instance, because they're prone to alcoholism, let's say. There's multiple things that could be like that. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Now, does that mean they believe it or does that mean they just think it in their mind? So is it an opinion? Well, if, if you believe that it is unclean, then you should abstain from it because God's probably telling you something. If your brother's grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. But by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So, in other words, for instance, we, we had a, a small group, that um, a dinner group at a church we were in a long time ago, that where one of the people was um, a vegetarian. And they said they wouldn't come to the group unless we ate vegetarian. Well, in front of them, we all agreed to do it. So, you know, once a month, <laughs> let's go vegetarian for your sake. But I'm not pledging to you that I'm going to be a vegetarian all the time. And I don't have to pledge that to you. <clears throat> so we did it that way. And that, that's kind of the way I see Paul talking about this. Don't let any that what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So in other words, what we did was to preserve the peace, to preserve the community. When we gathered as a community, then, then, then we did that. But we did it out of love. You know, it, the, the trick was doing it out of love <laughs> and not doing it out of resentment. That's a big deal, though. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let's pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding, which is, again, is what I said. If I were the pastor of the church and we had had a dinner for the entire church, I would not have let that person control things because that, that's exactly what it becomes. It becomes totalitarian control, bending everybody to your will in spite of the fact that's your opinion. There's nothing scriptural about it. <clears throat> Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. Paul, Paul declares it here. I mean, it's a big statement for Paul to declare that everything is clean. He said it twice already, and this is one passage today. Everything is clean, but it, it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Now, it, like I said, if we had a church-wide thing, and you, didn't, you were that offended by it, you could stay at home. That's the way it would work. You, you, you could stay at home for that, because uh, that's on you. <clears throat> he said, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. You have freedom to do these things, but but there's don't cause your brother to stumble. Don't put before him a stumbling block. In other words, don't serve meat and say, take it or leave it. Because in his conscience and in his heart, for him, it's wrong. He said, the faith you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one. Don't, don't spend your time preaching about eating meat, for instance. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. In other words, don't go against your conscience. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. So if, you, if, you, if you're not sure about these things, then don't do it. Because if you do, be convicted in all the things you do, is what Paul's trying to say here. Because the eating is not from faith. So if you have doubt, then you don't have faith that that's the right thing to do. And, and so if your conscience, if your scruples are stirred by this thing, abstain until you have a different conviction. 
He said, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It's because you're going against your conscience. You're going against something that could be the Holy Spirit saying something to you personally. And so if you go against that, if you have doubts that this is okay, don't do it, he says, because you need to be convicted of this. You need to, 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 to have no doubt about it in order to do this as an act of faith rather than sin. And sometimes we, we do have to understand the difference between this is something God's saying to me privately and personally versus what God has said to the body. Now, it, that, that applies to all manner of things. But Paul's speaking from the law. He knows that that food has been declared clean. He accepts that wholeheartedly. That doesn't mean that he has the, the capacity or the authority to throw out other parts of the law as well. Certainly not that which relates to personal conduct, and he doesn't. Paul is not an antinomian by any stretch of the imagination. Paul never uses or never lets liberty become license. Nope, there's certain things in which we have liberty, but there are other things we don't have liberty. And that's Paul's constant way of looking at things. And, but here, when we're talking about food and drink and those things, that what Paul's saying is, is that those things, there's liberty. But don't let l- your liberty become another person's sin. Don't allow that to happen. You can, you can circumscribe your own liberty for the sake of a brother, but don't ever let that brother's that weakness rule. And that becomes the problem. And as I said yesterday, I'm going to recommend one more time, R.C. Sproul, The Tyranny of the Weaker Brother. Great sermon. Highly recommend it.